Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's the holidays. We know what we do during the holidays, at least here in the United States of A. You put a lot of stuff in your body that maybe shouldn't be there. That's right. You uh, you eat. You have these various feasts that are all about getting through the winter ahead, getting through the cold, dark winter and surviving to the spring. It's a it's a it's a it's a ride as old as human history. And we're still doing it. Yeah. Even with with nasty, weird contraptions like candy canes. Yes. I have, I have a question. A yes. question. Does anybody really like candy canes? Um, I'm sure my son would like them if if. It, it, we, we'd steer him away from it. Like he got a candy cane uh, at some event recently and brought it home. And we kind of convinced him, actually, this is a candy that is best served hanging on the tree. This is more of a <laughs> this is more of a decoration, really. That's a candy you don't even have to lie to him to discourage him about. You just be like, this will cut your tongue and it's going to you're going to be sad you ate it. Your mouth will feel weird and you'll have injuries. Yeah, it doesn't have the hyper marketing of many modern candies because we, we, we limit the amount of candy that, that my son uh, uh, eats. And uh, that means we like at Halloween, he was uh, he had access to all of these candies, but then he traded them into the Switch Witch uh, and got a toy in exchange. But there were some candies that were just so well marketed. He was convinced they were his favorite, like Ike and Mike for some reason. Ike and Mike. Yeah. Marketed. Was, Do they yeah. have marketing? Well, I mean, they have the. Uh, no, the, wait, it's Mike and Ike. right? Mike and Ike. Mike, Mike first. Yeah. I don't, I don't know the, those guys that well. So I forget which <laughs> one comes first. But the package is like bright green and there are these colors and he's instantly connecting with it. And he's saying, oh, this one, this one's good. Look, those are free. Roots on there. It's bright. It's it's potent. I want to eat that. That's my favorite candy. He's never actually had it. Huh. Well, OK, so today's episode is going to be a sequel to our last episode about dangerous foods that aired last year. And uh, we, so today is dangerous foods to the revenge. No, the second course, <laughs> the the return of the food. There was never course. a good thing. Yes. yes. Uh, a dish best served cold. And there is going to be a lot of wonderful, dangerous, poisonous weirdness out there to talk about. Mm-hmm. But we do want to say at the beginning that uh, at least I feel deeply, Robert, I hope you feel the same way, that being alarmist is very much against the stuff to blow your mind ethos. Right. So we are not going to tell you there is a silent killer lurking in your pantry <laughs> that that save that for those websites that uh, demonize MSG and stuff mm-hmm. we've already debunked. This episode is going to be about dangerous and poisonous misadventures involving uh Rare foods, everyday foods, but no matter what case it is, it's not designed to scare you. But it should be a reminder that we live in a world of very complex and sometimes fragile biochemical interactions. And for those of us living in industrialized countries, I think sometimes our consumer mindset leads us to believe that our food should meet the industry quality control standards you'd get in the dead products you buy at Walmart. Right. Or Ikea, maybe. Uh, so if every version of the same product number table at Ikea really is the same, no matter which Ikea you go to anywhere in the world, shouldn't every baked potato be the same everywhere you go in the world? But it's not, is it? I mean, f- foods, the foods we eat are organisms or substances derived from organisms, plants, animals, Fungi. And as as much as we might like our food products to be contained and tamed and dependable as the output of a furniture factory, as we all know, sometimes life uh, finds a way. Yeah, I mean, these are organisms. Now, in some cases, especially with various fruits and whatnot, uh, it is the the organism's game for you to eat it. It wants you to eat it. But in many other cases, the organism does not want to be eaten and has certain uh, uh, biological uh, systems in place to prevent it, to discourage it, uh, to make it uh, difficult for you to carry this uh, this this act of gluttony out. Mm-hmm. And uh, and also any type of food that is produced, if it's, you know, a grown part of a thing's body or it comes out of the soil or a creature makes it, it is the, the it is the end of a, a production line, a yeah. production line that uh, is not standardized. Exactly. Exactly. 
No, it depends on the region. It depends on the environment, the climate, the conditions, what uh, materials are available for the organism to work with. So, yeah, biochemistry is a deep web of complex interactions. And the stuff we're getting is not fresh. It's the process. It's the end of a very long process. And it's just very common around the world in various ways for something weird to happen somewhere along that process. Right. All right. So what's what's first? First up, what's the first course here, Joe? Okay. well, I want to tell you a story. Okay. so in his work known as the Anabasis, the ancient Greek historian Xenophon tells a story from his time as a general in the Greek war against the Persians. And one of his accounts tells uh, of a story that took place in 401 BCE. While while Xenophon and his troops are returning home from battle with a group, uh, Xenophon's got about 10,000 Greek fighters with him, and they're traveling through uh, Colchis, uh, which is a region along the coast of the Black Sea in what is now the country of Georgia. And Xenophon's troops come across a place that is swarming with thousands of bees. There are just bees everywhere. And you might think, oh, that sounds horrible. But for a bunch of Greek soldiers, this is actually good news because they knew they're in for a treat. Fresh honey from the hive. That's right. They weren't packing any candy canes or Ike and Mike. Uh, <laughs> Mike were, and Ike. Come Ike on. and Mike. Uh, well, it might have, maybe it was reversed back then. I don't know how the, the Greeks, the ancient Greeks rolled. Uh, oh, yeah. The Greek alphabet. Yeah. I come before M. I'm not sure. At any rate, they probably weren't getting their uh, their sweet tooth uh, satisfied quite like they would uh, they would wish it to be. You know, I comes before M in our alphabet. Hmm. <laughs> our apologies Sorry. to uh, uh, the manufacturers of this candy. A little bit of brain problems here with me. Anyway, so so the Greek fighters, they've got honey delicious, right? But after eating the honey, the soldiers started to give off signs of a strange reaction. And so Xenophon writes that the soldiers began to go out of their heads and they suffered from diarrhea and vomiting. Then the soldiers collapsed to the ground and wallowed about as if dead drunk. And in some cases, they seemed to have lost their minds. Uh, in others, the men were like men on their deathbeds. Xenophon writes, quote, so they lay there in great numbers as though the army had suffered a defeat and great despondency prevailed. On the next day, however, no one had died. And at approximately the same hour as they had eaten the honey, they began to come to their senses. And on the third or fourth day, they got up as if from a drugging. Ooh, bad honey. So what happened? Yeah. Had the local bees risen up against them? Uh no, Xenophon's fighters had stumbled into a trove of the substance well known to inhabitants of the Black Sea coast, mad honey. Oh, this is what the ancients called it. Pliny called it. Uh, oh, I forget the term now. I think it's meli menomenon, the, the, the honey that is a mad maker. Oh, I like that. And there are other ancient accounts of mad honey poisoning. So in 67 BCE, the Roman military leader Pompey the Great is taking a Roman army near the southern shore of the Black Sea again while chasing the Persian army of King Mithridates of Pontus. And the Persians, they've got a group of allies, uh, apparently, who know about the mad honey. And these allies set a trap for Pompey's army. They place honeycombs full of mad honey from the local bees into containers and left them along Pompey's path, knowing that some of the soldiers would not be able to resist a sweet indulgence. And they were right. The, ho- the, the Romans were basically Winnie the Pooh. They were Pooh Bear. <laughs> oh, I've got to get the honey. Uh, so many Roman troops ate the honey. They became incredibly sick and disoriented, went out of their heads while the Romans were wallowing, wallowing around, you know, in a sh- bit of a sugary stupor. Mm-hmm. The Persian army came back. Killed him. Oh. Led to a battle with very asymmetrical outcome. Uh, I've read that more than a thousand Roman soldiers were killed and very few Persians died. A very a- asymmetrical outcome. It's a wonderful um, kind of military euphemism. euphemism. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A little bit of a callback there. Uh, that's I think the term would be a massacre. Yeah. Actually, that's the, the non honey glazed massacre. Yes. <laughs> a sticky massacre. Uh, but there's an excellent article on Mad Honey. Actually, I came across by none other than Adrian Mayer. If you remember from uh, our episode on geomythology. Oh, OK. Adrian Mayer is the main scholar we talked about in that that episode and she's known for the theory that various mythological beasts were inspired by 
ancient peoples coming across dinosaur fossils. So, for example, people in Central Asia may have found Triceratops remains in the Gobi Desert, Mm -hmm. and this led to the creation of griffin myths. And so we talked about her in that episode, but she has this article in a 1995 edition of Archaeology Magazine called Mad Honey. It's a great read. You can look it up online. Uh, but she talks about also how in A.D. 946, a ruler of the Kievan Rus called Olga of Kiev, who in general, I looked her up. She seems like she she's pretty B.A. She's like bad. <laughs> she's cool. Um, she used fermented honey from the Black Sea region to poison a group of about 5000 of her enemies and then had them massacred. Oh, wow. So there's a there's a long history of of military missteps or or outright uh, poisonings and massacres with mad honey. Yeah. And with all these ancient accounts, I mean, you have to wonder to what extent we're we're getting the true story. But These are the accounts uh, as presented by these ancient historians and authors. Because I can also see where this would be uh, a narrative to uh, invoke if you're on the losing side. Right. You know, to say, well, yes, our troops were. Uh, were massacred and our troops were ambushed, but they were also poisoned by this local honey or, right. or this not because uh, I was a bad commander. Them. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, but, but we do know now that this is totally plausible mm-hmm. because mad honey is absolutely a real thing. And mad honey, the problem is not the bees themselves but the flowers they pollinate. So in the Black Sea coastal region, bees often consume huge quantities of nectar from the flowers of the rhododendron plant. Hmm. And rhododendrons produce a potentially deadly neurotoxin called grayanotoxin. So I'm going to be referring to a paper published in Cardiovascular Toxicology by uh, Suze A. Jansen et al. called Grayanotoxin Poisoning, Mad Honey Disease and Beyond from 2012. And what they report is that uh, grayanotoxin is also known as andromedotoxin, acetylandromedol, and rhodotoxin. And it can be derived from the body parts of plants in the family Ericaceae, which includes rhododendron, pieris, agarista, and calmia. And in reality, grianotoxin is a family of related toxins. So there, there are a bunch of different grianotoxins. We should probably speak about it in the plural. There are more than 25 isoforms that have been derived from rhododendron. And here's the basic way it works in your body. So grianotoxins are poisonous because of their ability to bind to the group 2 receptor site in voltage-gated sodium channels, or VGSCs. And so I'll break that down basically. VGSCs are protein structures. They're little structures within the body that span across membranes and they facilitate the transfer of sodium ions, which is charged particles of sodium. And so the transfer of these charged particles is important for communication between the body's different tissues, allowing the passage of action potential in cells like neurons. If you introduce a toxin that binds to receptor sites in these sodium channels, you can essentially prevent effective communication between body tissues and disrupt the nervous system. Specifically, the researchers think that grayanotoxins work by preventing the inactivation of the sodium channel. To use a metaphor, it would be like leaving the light switch stuck in the on position. Okay. Uh, you can imagine how this would have negative systemic effects on the nerve cells and the body at large. Uh, but specifically, the authors think it probably leads to continuous uninterrupted stimulation of the vagal nervous system, the vagus nerve, which, of course, is very important in the body. It interfaces between uh, the brain, uh, the autonomic nervous system, and many muscles in the body from the heart and the lungs to the voice production center. So this is bad stuff. You don't don't want it in your body. It racks the nerves. Right. Uh, But granotoxin contamination of honey occurs most often just in the Black Sea region of Turkey, uh, especially from the plant's rhododendron rhododendron ponticum and rhododendron lutam. Uh, but rhododendron isn't the only plant to produce nectar-containing grayanotoxin, which can filter down into the honey that the bees produce, of course. Uh, honey-containing grayanotoxin has also been found in North America, for example, in North Carolina, where in the hmm. 1950s, a sample was found to ca- contain about 100 parts per million of grayanotoxin. And what did that come from? Well, the authors speculate it was probably derived from bees that ate the nectar of the mountain laurel or Calmia latifolia. Hmm. 
So I know if you're a honey fan, you're probably worrying like, oh, no, am I going to get mad honey? (laughs) Probably not, depending on where you are and how you get your honey. According to a Texas A&M University article citing anthropologist Vaughn Bryant, you you can find honey in the United States, uh, but not not so often. So Bryant says, quote, normally there are not enough rhododendrons in one area for the bees to make concentrated mad honey. However, sometimes there is a late cold snap in the eastern U.S. that kills a lot of flowers, but doesn't seem to stun the rhododendrons. Thus, they're the only thing blooming and uh-huh. the bees will focus all their attention on those flowers and produce concentrated mad honey during that period. These flowers are mostly in the Appalachian Mountains of the eastern U.S. Okay. That also goes with something I've read about this uh, type of poisoning being more common in the early spring, when mm-hmm. I guess also some of these granotoxin-producing flowers are they're more cold-resistant, might, might bloom earlier where other flowers aren't available. Hmm. Interesting. So it would be the... It would be these rare instances where the the poisonous flowers, the toxic flowers, are the the only source uh, for the bees. Yeah, because the bees don't love them the most. Right. It's, the, the bees it's, would rather have another flower, mm-hmm. but if all the other flowers are out of the game for some reason, right. they will go to the granotoxin plants and make their honey from that sweet, sweet nectar that people also, some people have a taste for. Hmm. Now, I'm guessing, too, that this is going to be more of a of a situation with your certainly your wild honeys yes. in these affected areas and may maybe maybe with with some like extreme indie honey, I guess. Right. But. You're probably not going to get this from a mass produced honey. Right. Uh, because that that involves I mean, number one, there's just quality control. So mm-hmm. they tend to know what types of flowers the nectar is coming from. But then there is also massive mixing involved. So when you get mass produced honey, they're blending together huge batches of honey right. from different hives. And even if there were some containing toxin, it would probably be mixed and thus diluted way down to a level that's not a threat. Okay. So outside of the Black Sea region, you would have to you would have to really have a string of bad luck, I think, to, to run across this stuff, right? Uh, probably. I mean, you could come across if somebody's like a wild honey collector, mm-hmm. you know, or like you said, extreme indie honey. Yeah. Uh, and they're, uh, they, they don't necessarily know what they're doing or they have some bad luck with, with mm-hmm. what flowers their bees have access to and they don't realize it in time before they give it to somebody to eat. You could encounter mad honey, uh, in other parts of the world, but it's gonna, definitely going to be most common in the Black Sea region, especially in Turkey. So if you eat some mad honey today, what's going to happen to you? Well, clinical characteristics, uh, I'm going to list a few. This is also, this is back to Jansen et al. So there's hypotension, meaning low blood pressure, uh, problems with cardiac rhythm, nausea and vomiting, sweating, dizziness, and quote, impaired consciousness. Oh. Kind of a euphemism, right? <laughs> uh, there's also less often, but still noted, fainting, blurred vision, uh, diplopia or double vision, salivation, convulsions, atrial fibrillation, cardiac arrest, and myocardial infarction, meaning a heart attack. All that really from a hit of bad honey? Yes, if you get enough of a concentrated dose you and eat, you eat enough of it, you can have symptoms like these. I would have liked to have seen a, a clinical list of symptoms that also included the various injuries that the Persian military uh, would have <laughs> yeah. inflicted on you in ancient times. Side effects include massacre. Yeah, dismemberment, uh, etc. <laughs> uh, but here's one more thing. Not all known cases of mad honey poisoning are accidental. Sometimes people take granotoxin contaminated honey intentionally mm. as an aphrodisiac or as an alternative medicine. And I think the jury's still out as to whether at low doses, uh, granotoxin may actually have some kind of positive effects. I think mm. it's not clear yet whether that actually is effective. Uh, but uh, the authors of the study I mentioned speculate that regularly taking contaminated honey for these reasons may lead to a condition called chronic mad honey intoxication <laughs> syndrome. That sounds like a syndrome you don't want to have to put on your little form you fill out when you get a new doctor. That's right. <laughs> All right. On that note, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we will discuss the dead man's fingers. All right, we're back. Uh, Robert, you have piqued my interest. Dead man's fingers? Are you literally talking about eating the fingers of a corpse? Um, no, but in a way it's kind of 
figurative. So are you, are you, are you, you, yeah, digitally, if you will. Uh, but here's the thing. Are you a crab fan? Do you enjoy eating crab? I don't eat it that often, but I do like it. Do you, what is the most crab-like form of your crab consumption? So do you, do you enjoy soft shell crab on the sandwich, the legs and the claws sticking out on the sides? It's another thing I don't eat that often, but when I've had it, I've liked it. Okay. It's, it's my absolute favorite. I think it's the, it is the best way to eat an animal where right. there is just, there's, there's less deniability about what you're doing. You're uh-huh. just, you're biting into this crab. The whole shape is there. The shape is there. You it's, might as well eat a cockroach. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's, <laughs> and it's the meat, but also all these other substances that are all fried up, all the other bits of its anatomy. Right. It's, I feel like it's a very honest mode of consumption, even though it is cooked. So it's not like you're mm-hmm. just eating the, 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 the raw living crab. No, I can get with that. Okay. Well, this is, uh, uh, we're not just talking about crabs here, though. Of course, we're talking about, about the dead man's fingers, which if you've ever, uh, actively engaged in the, the cook, cooking of crabs and catching of crabs, then you, you probably have some degree of familiarity with what I'm talking about here. So in our last dangerous foods episode, we discussed, uh, the manner by which, uh, fugu puffer fish become edible via the skilled culinary removal of certain tetrodotoxin-laden innards. Right. If you, It's got certain organs that have especially high concentrations of this toxin. Right. So you need a skilled chef to cut that little sliver out, cook it up, and it's good to go, right? Yeah, but a good sushi chef will know what, they were, what they're doing. Right. They'll be able to get it out of there, and you shouldn't have to worry about it if, if you're in good hands. Exactly. So this is... Faintly similar to that, but but this is definitely a, a category where we're going to be dispelling a lot of ideas about dangerous foods rather than, uh, you know, uh, giving you the science be- behind why it's actually dangerous. OK, well, you got to tell me where the name comes from. OK, uh, it, as far as I can tell, the name itself is just kind of lost uh, to history. You know, we don't know, like, where, you know, what region this came from. But uh you do find dead man's fingers in edible crabs. And it's of it's a of course it's it's wonderful fear marketing, right? You decided <laughs> that you have this rotting hand of the drowned dead that's inside your food. <laughs> and if you eat it, according to the you know, the, the urban legends, it, it it depends what it depends on the legend what happens. Maybe you're gonna become violently ill. Maybe you're gonna contract a disease. I found people who said, Oh yeah, when when we were cleaning crabs as a kid, um my parents or a big brother you know, it depends who's screwing with you basically right and who's saying oh don't eat those parts if you eat the dead man's fingers you'll die or you'll catch a disease uh or you or you'll become violently ill uh it the the versions uh, are various but I, I find the stories particularly interesting given our relationship with crabs creatures that we have to keep alive and then cook alive in order to uh, to eat them so it's, it's perfectly strange that we summon this tiny rotting humanoid hand inside the body of our victim yeah that is a nice metaphor is like the, the hand that places them into the pot of yeah. boiling water yeah. comes back from inside the shell. Yeah. So it's kind of, kind of beautiful in its own way. And, uh, in, in trying to figure this out, um, cause I'm not going to spoil it just yet. If you don't know what the dead man's hand is, you might expect it to be something related to digestion, right? Uh, yeah. I'm guessing crab anus or <laughs> I don't know. No, as far as I know, you, you, you eat the, uh, that portion of the crab, uh, <laughs> at least with the, uh, the soft shell crab, mm. but, um, but but you know there are plenty of examples of animals uh, for which we cast aside certain internal organs, um, either out of necessity or just we don't want to bother uh, processing them into sausages or dog food or whatever. Uh, even the Komodo dragon will sling the intestines of a intestines of a kill around in order to loosen the feces from the intestines so that they can eat them. So weird, yeah. I've never heard of that. Yeah, it's pretty great because they yeah they don't like. Uh, Eating they, feces, but and, they do want the large intestine. Yeah, yeah, they're tasty. They'll eat everything but that. And the baby Komodo dragons, uh, there, there's no child rearing in Komodo dragon culture. Uh, <laughs> so the, the baby Komodos have to, have to climb up trees to get away from the adults who will try to eat them. Uh-huh. But they can, they've also been observed to smear themselves in feces and, or at least they wind up covered in feces. And then the, uh, the parents will not eat them because they're disgusting. So it's kind of like predator. With Arnold Schwarzenegger in the mud. <laughs> but they can't see them. They're just not tasty. Yeah. That would be a good interpretation on Predator. Oh, yeah. What if all, all the mud was poop? And then the, the Predator is just like, ugh, yeah. I can't do this. Exactly. This not That's what anymore. was going on the whole time. He could <laughs> see him. 
But, uh, you know, but anyway, but based on all of this, it feels somewhat accurate that there would be this sickening, disease spreading or even deadly portion of the common food crap, right? Yeah. Oh, I would think so. Yeah, I mean, it a, lines a crab, up with the puffer, at least, with uh-huh. the, the fugu. Just intuitively looking at a crab, it looks like something that would have poisonous parts. Yeah, you would look at it, it looks back at you, and you might ask yourself, can I eat all of this? <laughs> Clearly not, because a lot of it's very, uh, very hard and pointy. Uh-huh. So the, the fingers that we're talking about here are nothing more than the crab's gills. Oh. And this is where respiration and filtration takes place, and they consist of uh, many different plume-like filaments arranged around a central axis. In the blue crab, for instance, there are eight gills on either side. So, and and if you, I guess if you you kind of squint at them, uh, and I've I've looked at them when cleaning crabs and uh, instructed by my my in-laws uh, who know what they're doing, and I do not know what I'm doing, but they tell me, oh, yeah, that's the dead man's hand right there. Are they like crab country people? Oh yeah, yeah, my. Uh, uh, my wife's family has uh, Cajun blood, and her brother oh, lives okay. uh, down in um, in Ocean Springs, Mississippi. So yeah, they were like constantly crabbing, okay, uh, catching crabs, bringing them back. The whole family taking them apart, um, and it's it's good eating. But um, but yeah, if you really if you if you want to interpret it as such, the dead man's hand might look like a little diseased leprechaun claw or something, <laughs> uh, or two of them. Now, the reality here, of course, is that the crab is an organism. So there's a lot going on underneath that shell uh-huh. um, or, you know, underneath where the shell would be if you're using a, a soft shell. The the white muscle meat, that's the prize stuff. That's the stuff that gets picked away and put into other uh, other recipes. That's the stuff you might buy in bulk, pre-picked uh, for uh, an exaggerated price. Mm-hmm. But you also find all these other things. If you've ever cleaned a crab or if you've ever uh, eaten soft shell crab, you know what I'm, I'm talking about. There's, There's just some weird nasty sauce inside the carapace. Potentially, a lot of it's open to interpretation because there's there's a yellowish mustard. Okay, that is uh, the fat. In females, you'll find orange ovaries, and uh, in males, you'll find uh, small white testes. There's a stomach. There's a little gray heart. Uh, there are intestines. There is an anus. Uh, everything you might expect to find when you are taking apart an animal, uh, <laughs> uh, certainly one that was just living uh, before you, you know, boiled it up or whatever. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and also, if you're eating a, a, a fried soft shell crab right off the bun, you definitely encounter that that yellow mustard fat and all these other uh, uh, ingredients. So are you supposed to get rid of that stuff or what? Well, the instructions vary. So, you know, some people are going to be very pure about their about the, the picked crab. Right. Because mm-hmm. that's that's the meat. And that if you're if, if you're picking apart cooked crabs. You're just going to probably eat the meat out of it, right? Right. But, uh, but, but it, it depends. I mean, there a lot, most of this is edible. The fat is certainly edible. And with soft shell crabs, you just kind of bite into the whole thing and just eat it whole like a, a monster. Right. Uh, but, uh, at, at most, what, uh, generally what is, is prescribed is that you remove the eyes and you remove the gills, the dead man's fingers. And it's not because they're poisonous, but because they're chewy and it's cartilage and, uh, and they might be a bit bitter. But it's not a do or die situation. It's merely a these are the parts of the crab that are not delicious and or are not fun to eat. Okay. But they're not poisonous. They don't carry diseases. And interestingly enough, uh, you know, it also is going to depend on the culture. I ran across a wonderful uh, Serious Eats article by writer uh, Chi Chi Wang, and she does this uh, series titled The Nasty Bits, where she <laughs> she kind of, she talks about the, the nasty bits of various uh, um, uh, foods uh, sources. Uh, and in particular, she talks about about crabs in one of these. She cuts open a live crab and tries out uh Crab miso or kani miso, which is this Japanese tradition that typically involves cooking a partially vivisected crab directly over a low burning flame. Wow. Yeah. It's like cooking it in its little shell after you just cut it open. That's brutal. It, well, I mean, it's all of it's brutal. That's true. <laughs> but, um, but, but here's a quote from it because she sums it up really nicely. I poured a bit of sake into the shell. The grayish green contents bubbled vigorously over the small flame. I cooked the parts until they were just heated through, soft and rich, with a taste not unlike liver. The cani miso was a delight to eat right out of the shell, though I saved a portion of it to have on toast and yet another to have with rice. And it did look very, you know, very cool. We eat all sorts of weird parts of, of animals. Uh, some are more acquired tastes than others, so it makes sense, especially in a within Japanese cuisine, right, that is so dependent upon the, the riches of the ocean that there would be uh, a, a, a finer use of uh, the crab innards here. Well, I got to respect that, but 
but the dead man, dead man's fingers specifically, the gills. So you're saying not poisonous, nothing to this myth at all? No, not poisonous, not going to cause a disease, not going to kill you. It's just a taste issue. It's, uh, and, uh, and, and the, uh, the consistency of it. And yet some would find even a way to appreciate that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there are diverse flavors to play with there beyond the white meat of the crab. And uh, if you want to learn more about this, especially if you have access or obligations uh, for, uh, of surrounding live crabs and freshly cooked crabs and, <laughs> and, you know, pulling them apart, I ran across a wonderful PDF from mathinscience.info. It's like an educational website. Uh-huh. And uh, this particular PDF guides you through a, quote, edible dissection of a blue crab. And so it's it's kind of a combination between a, you know, like a school, uh, like a, a biology class dissection mm-hmm. and a culinary preparation. OK, so it 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 takes you through the creature's anatomy as you take it apart and also tells you what you can eat and how you go about eating it. Well, I do think in general for people, if you're going to eat meat, if you're going to eat the mm-hmm. body parts of an organism, I think it's good to familiar, familiarize yourself with that organism yeah. and what the parts you're eating are and where they come from. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I think we do we do ourselves, we do our and we do our animals uh, a disservice when we distance ourselves from the the source and the reality of our sustenance. Yeah, if you just think about the the meat that you're eating as a thing that arrives wrapped in plastic wrap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe with a mystical dead leprechaun hand in there at some point. <laughs> so I'll I'll include links out to both the nasty bits uh, uh article as well as the uh edible dissection instructions on the landing page for this episode at stuff to mind.com. Okay, Robert, I have a food to ask about. Okay. And I only know about it because of a line in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Okay. Yeah, I remember the, you, you remember the scene with the, the French character who's taunting oh, yes. Arthur and his knights. Mm-hmm. I think that's played by John Cleese, right? Yes. Yeah. And he outrageous French, uh, knights. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. So he gives a lot, he gives a lot of great insults to, uh, the knights of Camelot. And at one point, he alleges that their father smelled of elderberries. <laughs> and I always found that funny. But it's one of those things where I'm sure you've had this experience where you find something funny without knowing what it means. It's just the sound of the words that mm-hmm. makes you laugh. I've never seen an elderberry. I've never, as far as I know, never tasted an elderberry. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the deal with them is, but are they poisonous? Um, yeah, this is an interesting, uh, subject because elderberries are another example of a food item that can prove dangerous if you consume it raw and under the right circumstances. Okay. But it's also regularly and tra- traditionally used, uh, in, uh, you know, cooking for, uh, in various consumable forms. It's been used in medicine for ages. It has, uh, antioxidant properties. It's used to treat sinus infection, cold and flu. And then on the, on the culinary side, it's been used in jams, pies, liqueurs. And according to uh, BBC Good Food, it is a must for, quote, the famous German Black Forest ham that is salted and seasoned with spices, elderberries and juniper berries. Oh, OK. Yeah. And uh, the liqueur uh, uh, in particular, it's actually similar to gin, which is uh, uh, created with uh, with juniper berries. Oh, OK. Yeah. So it's uh, similar to that. But um but this is, uh, elderberries is something you tend to pick wild, and it's especially a thing in traditional, uh, English cooking, because this is something you would, you would run out to the hedgerow, and you'd pick some elderberry, and then you'd bring it back. But not stand there at the hedgerow eating raw. Right. It's spe- well, there are accounts of people eating it, and there are accounts of people eating it raw and not feeling, uh, any symptoms from it. But this is not, this is certainly not recommended. Um, okay. So the, the the UK's Food Standards Agency recommends cooking elderberries to destroy toxins that are present in the raw berries. And it's also a general uh, rule of thumb to avoid unripe berries. So generally the way this uh, this is going to work is that you uh, you're only going to deal with blue or purple berries and you're going to avoid the red ones uh, completely. Uh, So they tend to like darken as they age. Yes. Yeah. So you avoid the the ripe ones. Uh, It's also. uh, also, general good rule of thumb, uh, pregnant breastfeeding uh, individuals, as well as people with autoimmune conditions, uh, autoimmune deficiencies, rather, are encouraged to skip elderberries hmm. because there is that possibility for there's also a possibility for for interactions with various uh, uh, drugs. But uh, but generally speaking, if it's cooked, it's prepared properly, 
especially like, you know, jams, desserts, et cetera, it's not being consumed, uh, on its own, uh, then you're, you're, you're fine. It's been used, uh, without incident, you know, for, for, for ages. Um, there are, uh, there are different varieties of elderberry and, uh, the main ones that you encounter, there's, uh, Sambusus nigra, which is, uh, the European elder, also called the black elder. And uh, that one is most often uh, used for uh, medicinal purposes. Mm-hmm. And then it's generally avo- uh, advised to avoid the dwarf elder, the <laughs> Sambusus elvis, uh, completely. And because he gives you a cursed magical stone. Yeah, it's, it sounds wonderful. The, the black elder in the forest. Meet the black elder at the hedgerow. But, uh, but yeah, so, uh, but, but in terms of what's toxic here, the active uh, alkaloids in elderberry plants are, um, hydrocyanic acid and, uh, sambucine, and both will cause nausea. Sambucine. I went, is there any connection to sambuca or those just, is that a false cognate? Ah, uh, th- that may be a false cognate. I, I, I cannot say one way or another on that, but I doubt it. Okay, so so far we've talked about mad honey, we've talked about dead man's fingers, we've talked about elderberries. Uh what what is next? Surely there's some exotic uh uh food item that you have for us to discuss here. Well, Robert, I want to take you on a food poisoning mystery adventure. Okay. In 1970s England. Okay. This is fitting to follow uh, elderberry. So, in 1979, On the second day of the autumn term at a school in South London, a bunch of schoolboys, all the boys there, lined up for a school lunch, including steak pie, gravy, boiled potatoes, cabbage and or canned carrots, followed by a dessert of apricots or something called, quote, syrup sponge pudding. Oh, that sounds delicious. If our British listeners can tell me what that is, (laughs) I would love to know. Mm -mm Mm-mm-mm. Sponge pudding. Anyway, after this lunch, 78 boys who had eaten the school lunch became sick with things like abdominal pain or diarrhea or vomiting, headache, fever. 17 had to go to the hospital and three of those were considered dangerously ill. Uh, two had what was reported as minimal pain, but, quote, diarrhea was copious. Oh. And what I'm quoting from here is the uh, a 1979 edition of the Quarterly Journal of Medicine, an article by Mary McMillan and J.C. Thompson. Continuing, the three boys uh, considered dangerously ill were comatose or in a stupor and had peripheral circulatory collapse when they were admitted to the hospital. The others admitted to the hospital had symptoms such as convulsive twitching or spasms, confusion, hallucination and general delirium. Now, fortunately, nobody died. All of the boys were well enough to go back home within six to 11 days of admission. Uh, but with a few of them, it seemed very close. So what had made them sick? On to the hunt. Lab tests for bacterial and viral infection all returned negative. So it was not a microbial infection of any kind. Okay. Doctors also tested the boys' blood and feces to see if they could detect other toxic substances. For example, elevated levels of lead arsenic, copper. They also looked for zinc because at the time zinc phosphide was used as a common rat poison. Mm. Uh, They looked for signs of organic compounds such as nicotine, organophosphorus, various pesticides and defoliants, all of it negative. Okay, so if we ruled out the syrup sponge pudding yet? (laughs) No, not necessarily. Uh, No, all of these could be suspect. What if it was the gravy? We don't know. Yeah, what's in gravy? Finally, what, well, that is a, what's in school lunch gravy. <laughs> Maybe the same thing that's in syrup sponge pudding. Mostly circus animals, right? <laughs> Finally, one Dr. Mary Whitaker of the University of Exeter, as well as the authors of the study I just mentioned, Mary McMillan and J.C. Thompson, um, they determined the culprit. They found that the sick boy's blood plasma had a deficiency of something called pseudocholinesterase. Okay. Now, I got to explain a little body chemistry here. Cholinesterase is a naturally occurring enzyme in your body. It's in your blood plasma and it's necessary for the correct functioning of an animal's nervous system. So your body, like other animal bodies, has a nervous system as its command center and your muscles, skin, inner organs don't do much without the nervous system telling them to do it. 
And you shouldn't just think about this in the, you know, conscious, deliberate sense of using your brain to move your skeletal muscles to jump over a pothole or throw a bowl of soup at somebody or whatever it is you do with your body. Uh, this also applies to the unconscious functioning of most of your internal organs. They need electrical stimulation or inhibition from the nervous system. And these electrical signals are transported through the body through structures called synapses. Synapses, of course, we've talked about them on the show before, but they're the gateways between neurons or nerve cells. And they allow electrical and chemical signals to pass through. And so these signals are often carried by a chemical called acetylcholine. Meanwhile, you can stop these signals with a specific cholinesterase enzyme called acetylcholinesterase, which breaks down the acetylcholine that allows the passage of the, the signals. So you need both. You need both chemicals in your body to allow and regulate proper functioning of the nervous system. If you don't have enough cholinesterase to break down the acetylcholine, your nervous system is going to start to experience the equivalent of a street congested with lots of cars and the cars won't stop. Ooh. So you can experience negative effects all over the body as a result of the nervous system being unable to effectively inhibit signals firing across synapses. Okay, so if this were a game of Clue, at this point we we kind of know what the murder weapon was, but not who or whether what the murderer is is it the was yeah it, was it uh was it was it colonel syrup sponge pudding <laughs> or um General Gravy, or one of these other uh, fine suspects. Or in the British version, Reverend Gravy. <laughs> uh, yeah, good question. So so the boys had been poisoned by something that inhibited the production of cholinesterase in their bodies, or it, it generally inhibited cholinesterase. Actually, I can't remember if it was the production or if it naturally lowered. Anyway, they had decreased cholinesterase. And this allowed the researchers to isolate the cause of the outbreak because they knew what in the meal had the ability to do that. Potatoes, oh. poison potatoes. And before you think, wait, who on earth would try to poison a group of English schoolboys with a weapon as pure and honest as the potato? <laughs> the answer is nobody. It wasn't intentional at all. The poisoning was traced to a sack of old potatoes in the school kitchen that had been sitting around since summer, mm. long enough to develop a formidable poison profile. The potatoes were poisoned by their very own nature. And this was backed up by interviews with the students where it was later found that the, the really the only thing all of the students who became sick had in common was that they'd eaten the potatoes. For example, like a vegetarian student was mm -hmm. poisoned and the other things had different options about desserts and stuff. But all the sick boys had eaten those old potatoes from the summer term. So how on earth would an old potato from the summer term do something that crazy to your nervous system? Well, the everyday potato is the tuber of a plant called Solanum tuberosum, which is a member of the plant family uh, Solanaceae, or the nightshade family, oh. which, of course, you might recall is sort of known for its poisons. Eggplants, tomatoes, and some other fruits are also members of this family. Potato plants naturally contain a range of defensive poisons called glycoalkaloids, and two primary alkaloids in potatoes are called solanine and chacosine. And in most cases of potato poisoning, the solanine is the one that gets most often singled out by name as the primary cause of illness, but there, there are multiple glycoalkaloids at work. And these toxins can be found in many parts of the plant. So if you ever decide to grow a potato plant for yourself in your home garden, mm -hmm. do not eat the fruit of this plant. Do not eat its flowers and don't get it in your head to make yourself a nice cup of potato leaf tea because all throughout the plant you will find the presence of these glycoalkaloid poisons that can do to you what happened to these South London schoolboys. Oh, okay. Now, most recorded cases of solanine poisoning do not end in death, but in some cases, especially where there are like aggregating factors such as malnutrition uh, or starvation at play, solanine poisonings can be deadly. And I want to give a few examples from a book about food intolerance called Was It Something You Ate by John Emsley and Peter Fell, published by Oxford University Press in 2002. Uh, they cite an example where during the Korean War, food shortages in North Korea forced people in many communities to survive on things like rotten potatoes. And in one area, 382 people became sick from solanine poisoning, of which 55 were hospitalized and 22 died. 
Symptoms included weak pulse, blue lips and ears, pale skin, enlargement of the heart and liver, swelling of the face, abdomen and extremities. And death usually occurred within five to ten days in the cases where people died. In the last stages before death, people experienced excitability and, and attacks of shaking all over the body. And they eventually died from respiratory failure, it's reported. And there are a couple of other cases in 1918 in Glasgow, Scotland. 61 people got sick with vomiting, diarrhea, and headache after eating potatoes. Of them, one boy died of strangulation of the bowel. Oh. And also in 1925, a family of seven was poisoned by green potatoes and two of them died. Well, Joe, at this point, I imagine a lot of our listeners are thinking, well, heck, we live in a a French fry nation. here. We live in a a fully loaded baked potato nation. This is this is bad news. I mean, we eat so much potato. Yeah. Uh, Our children eat so many potato products. Uh, How do we steer clear of this? Potato poisoning. Are we begging for death? Yeah. yeah. How to avoid uh, uh, the the reaper solanine and its chemical brethren in hoods? <laughs> uh, no. So most potatoes are fine. This is a thing you you really shouldn't worry about, and there are clear signals to look out for, and I'll tell you what they are. But there's no reason to freak out about potatoes in general. Potatoes do contain some amount of solanine naturally, and actually Dr. Harriet Hall over at Science-Based Medicine has a really good blog post about this, about general solanine content in potatoes. She writes, quote, It's estimated that it would take 2 to 5 milligrams per kilogram of body weight to produce toxic symptoms, and she's referring to, to solanine there, mm-hmm. uh, the glycoalkaloids. A large potato weighs about 300 grams and has a solanine content of less than 0.2 milligrams per gram. That works out to about 0.03 milligrams per kilogram for an adult, a hundredth of the toxic dose. I figure a murderous wife would have to feed something like 67 large potatoes to her husband in a single meal to poison him. Unless he's a phenomenally big eater, arsenic would be a better bet. Huh. So regular potatoes with normal solanine content, this is not something you need to worry about unless you're eating hundreds of potatoes. And then you probably need to worry about all those french fries. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you'll probably have, I don't know, a a reaction to the salt first or Mm -hmm. something. But properly farmed potatoes produced by experienced growers tend to be bred for really low glycoalkaloid and specifically solanine content in the tuber, much lower than you'd find in a wild potato. Uh, and according to that Imsley and Fell book I mentioned earlier, the average potato has maybe three to six milligrams of solanine per 100 grams of mass. So that might be a different figure than Hall had. But either way, this is not a threat. Most of this also is going to be on the outside near the peel. So if you peel the potato, you're probably getting rid of most of it. And the concentration of solanine in the potato tends to increase if the potato is bruised or exposed to light, which tends to cause greening. You've seen green potatoes before. Mm-hmm. Those are the ones you don't eat. Solanine is generally found in uh, in higher proportions in potatoes that are have turned green or especially have begun to sprout. I think that, yeah, where I've seen the green potatoes the most have been the uh, the sort of uh, uh, science classroom potato experiments. Yes. Where you, you have it uh, have toothpicks stuck in it and you're, uh-huh. you're you're growing it out or something. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's been exposed to light for a long period yeah, or of Mr. time. Or classic Mr. Potato Head, I imagine. <laughs> Though I don't know that I've ever actually encountered one of those. Oh, I've never thought about him being poisoned, but he really yeah. he probably is. Don't he sits out on the counter all day. <laughs> well, so you're thinking, how, how can I know to avoid this kind of poisoning? How do I keep the glycoalkaloids out of my body? Well, simple steps. Store your potatoes in a cool, dry place. Don't eat old potatoes. Don't eat a potato that is green or sprouting. Mm -hmm. And if you're in doubt, peel your potatoes because there is likely much more poison in the peel than in the starchy center. All right. I feel better at this point. I was a little nervous. Now I feel better. Okay. Another fun fact about the green potatoes, though, the green you see in a green potato that may be quite poisonous is not solanine or any other glycoalkaloid itself, but regular old chlorophyll, stuff that makes plants green. The solanine and the chlorophyll, chlorophyll, they're just correlated. So if you see chlorophyll, it probably means there are metabolic processes going on in the potato uh, that uh, this means it's probably been exposed to sun or something, which tends to increase the solanine content. Okay. One last historical side note, uh, in the mid-1960s, 
Researchers in the United States bred a new strain of potato that was known as the Lenape potato, and it was released in November 15th, uh, 1967 by the Crops Research Division of the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the Agricultural Experiment Station of Pennsylvania. And it was a cross between some existing potato varieties selected to create a tuber perfect for making potato chips. Huh. So it had a high specific gravity, meaning a high solids content, lots of dry matter, mm-hmm. and a resistance to common parasites and potato diseases such as late blight, potato scab, mild mosaic, and tuber necrosis from leaf roll and stem end browning. Don't potatoes have the best disease names? They do. I mean, I guess that they're just, they're just ready for it. They're always a little, already a little bit grotesque, right? Yeah. And it was also considered to make uh, potato chips with good color, could make good potato chips even after it had been in cold storage. Okay. So new, po- superior potato breed. This is the age of you want a pristine, just shining, like ivory white potato chip. Yes. Before we reach this age of like cool, multicolored potato chips. Exactly. Yeah, people wanted it. It, it. it should look like it was made out of plastic. <laughs> uh, but unfortunately, there was a problem. The Lenape varietal was found to have a defect. It was poisonous, reportedly oh. able to cause headaches, nausea, vomiting, fever, bad symptoms. And what was the culprit? Well, the potato naturally contained elevated levels of glycoalkaloids. So the Lenape potato was withdrawn from consumer consumer production uh, production in shame. I don't I don't think it actually ever made it to the stores, to the consumers themselves. Mm -hmm. Or if it did, it was pretty soon after withdrawn. But uh, reading up on this, I wanted to know it was my first occasion to check out a 1960s edition of the American Potato Journal. Oh, yeah. This is your first experience. You'd, <laughs> you'd, not, you'd not picked up this uh, this journal previously. It's a fascinating journal. <laughs> uh, but also, I wanted to mention that I think because of its inclusion in an influential book, the story about the Lenape potato was often referenced in the 1990s during the first big debate on GMO crops, huh. though the poison potato itself was the product of more traditional plant breeding. Yeah, like, so yeah, that's the thing, right? I mean, we've been with our with our cultivated um, agricultural products, we have been manipulating them for yeah, quite a while. Exactly. Uh, regular levels like non-genetic manipulation. I mean, and really by the virtue, I mean, it's still genetic manipulation. We've been we've been manipulating these plants for ages. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I think it was just generally considered an example of the dangers of what happens when you use science to mess around with pure uh, natural foods. But of course, the other per- potato varieties that, you know, we know and love are the product of agriculture and breeding and, mm-hmm. you know, scientific investigation into the Mendelian genetics of potato right. varietals uh, and a much less dangerous. You can produce a much less dangerous potato through these processes than the glycoalkaloid rich wild potato. So I, I'm not sure what kind of argument that makes, really. So we're continuing to to, to try and breed the, the Kwisatz Haderach of the potato, but there's <laughs> yeah, always the any Jesuit potato. Yeah, breeding but there, cult. there's always the chance you'll create these various monsters on the way. Right. I think so. <laughs> All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will jump into another dangerous food example. And yes, there'll be at least one more Dune reference. All right, we're back. So this is a big one, of course. Uh, I think everybody's run across an example of this. Someone saying the apple. The, the sweet, innocent apple, the everyday apple a day keeps the doctor away fruit. This contains seeds. And if you eat these seeds, you will you will become poisoned and you will die. Have you heard variations of this? I don't know if I've been told I would die, but I've heard that the seeds contain poison. And I think in a limited sense, that is true. Correct. I mean, it is true. It's one of as, as we'll discuss. It's definitely one of these cases where you are not going to poison yourself eating the seeds of apples. It's just there, there's, there no, there's no record of this ever happening. And uh, when you start looking at the math and the, the, the quantity of toxins in the seeds, it just, it's just impossible. Yeah, I think as with almost everything else we've talked about in this episode, the old adage in chemistry holds true, mm-hmm. or is it chemistry? Toxicology, the dose makes the poison. Right. Anything, including water, including sugar, including whatever anything in the correct dosage is poisonous. So the question is, how much of it are you getting? Exactly. And how little does it take to hurt you? 
Yeah, so the reality here is that, yes, the seeds, pits, and stones of many varieties of fruit contain small amounts of cyanide. Uh, there are a number of forms of cyanide, and if you take enough of the wrong one or the right one, depending on what your, your goal is, uh, you can suffer poisoning. Symptoms include headache, dizziness, fast heart rate, shortness of breath, and vomiting. Uh, this may be followed by seizures, slow heart rate, low blood pressure, loss of consciousness, and you know cardiac arrest and death. I mean, it, it's cyanide. It's it's a poison. Right. Now, apples in particular contain uh, a compound called amygdalin in their seeds. And this is a cyanide and sugar-based molecule. All right? So if you start chewing the seeds, uh, your saliva enzymes, they hit uh, uh, this uh, particular compound. They cut off the sugar part from the molecule. And the remainder then can decompose to produce the poisonous gas, hydrogen cyanide. Yikes. Yeah, which, which sounds crazy. And and definitely makes me think of that scene in Dune where uh, where uh, where the Duke bites into the poison tooth in his mouth uh, and then breathes out in an attempt to kill his captors to kill the uh, uh, Vladimir Harkonnen. Oh, that's a that's a good scene. It's a great scene, yeah. And and it makes you think. Well, maybe you should, should just bit into an apple and just doesn't he, he fails to kill Harkonnen? He right? does. He kills uh, Peter. Oh, Peter DeVries. Yeah, he's, he's, so he's able to take out one of the baddies, but, uh, but, but luck, pure luck saves the, the Baron. As you allude to, yeah, that scene would have been much more awkward if he'd been trying to uh, hold on while I eat 60 apples. <laughs> yeah. Allow me to chew the, uh, my final request is that you give me unlimited apple seeds to chew <laughs> and you hang out really close to my face. It would have, it was not that, that is not a Mintat uh, created plan, a Mintat approved plan. Okay, but so how many seeds does it really take? Okay, so here's another case, uh, as uh, like we did in a previous example, where you have to bust out some grams and milligrams. All right. So cyanide toxicity in humans, you're generally talking 0.5 to 3.5 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. Okay. So, you know, it depends on the your body, how big you are. Um, for a fatal dose, you'd n- need to hit at least... 1.5 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. Okay, so that's kind of, so now you have a basic range of toxicity and death. The seeds of the apple themselves, uh, you're looking at three milligrams of cyanide per gram of seeds, and one seed is approximately 0.7 grams. So you would... Yeah. So it'd be like two point something milligrams of cyanide per seed. Yeah, you'd need to basically you would need to chew an absurd number of apple seeds to pull this off. And there are no reports of anyone actually doing it, either intentionally, you know, out of, I don't know, madness or or accidentally. Even Johnny Appleseed running around chewing on apples all day was not able to kill himself. But I think there are some other seeds in natural fruits that we eat all the time that are a little bit more dangerous than apple pits, right? This is true. Uh, and there's uh, there's actually an excellent article that came out in The Guardian uh, uh, last year, actually. Uh, really good. It has a wonderful chart that just shows you the different uh, uh, levels of cyanide in these different uh, fruits. I'll have to include a link to it on the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. But the basics are that... Uh, Apple seeds with uh, three milligrams per gram, that places apple somewhere in the middle of our spectrum between the 0.1 milligram per gram of the common nectarine. So that's the low end up to the 17.5 milligrams per gram in the European uh, green gauge plum. I've never heard of that. Yeah, I had not either. It's a a European specialty. uh, And it's yeah, that's that's a big one. Likewise, uh, the apricot is pretty big too. The kernels of the apricot, uh, 14.4. And there have been plenty of cases of problematic ingestion of apricot kernels, typically by children, as well as uh, cherry pits are another one. Cherry pits have 3.9. Now with those, I think I've read that you have to do some processing to make them especially dangerous, right? Like if you chew up cherry pits or something, they're more dangerous. That's right. So remember the saliva that I mentioned earlier in the apple seeds. So there's that breaking down and the separation of that compound. Uh, so yeah, chewing the, the seeds, chewing the kernel. Uh, also, I, I've, I've heard that if you were to just grind up a bunch of cherry pits, you might have a similar scenario as well. Uh, I mean, you would have a similar scenario. So those are those are the areas where you there's more concern, and generally that means that the concern uh, with cherries, for example, 
is going to be uh, improper food preparation, like somebody who has no idea what they're doing and they grind up a bunch of uh, of cherries for something uh, without uh, removing the pit. Or it's a case where a child gets a hold of a bunch of kernels from apricots or a bunch of uh, of, uh, of cherry pits and starts chewing them. Those are situations where uh, the condition often escalates and there is, uh, you know, some serious toxicity uh, that a doctor has to deal with. Well, I got to invite you all over for a uh, taste of my fresh made pasta with home ground apricot pit pesto. <laughs> but it is one of these situations where, yeah, the average person might not realize that, uh, the the average uh, cherry with the with the pit in it does contain bits of cyanide and you could you could have a, a lethal uh, dose of cyanide in your house it's just if you're following the rules you're going to be throwing all of that cyanide out right if you eat it the normal way there's no danger right but th- this is maybe a good reason why you know, I remember when I was a kid Having there being games about spitting fruit pits. Did did you have games? I feel like spitting fruit fruit pits. Yeah, it's like you 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 know how far can you spit the watermelon seeds? Oh yes, watermelon seeds. Not saying they're dangerous, but Mm -hmm. maybe the same is true of cherry pits and stuff like that. Maybe this is a way of culturally preserving the instinct to not chew up and swallow those those poisonous apricot pits and cherry seeds. Huh. Well, you know, I was I was thinking about this when we first uh, discussed this because just last night. My my son, he's four and a half. Uh, he eats all the time, and I was giving him some uh, some orange slices to eat in the bathtub uh, because you have to. There has to be some overlap, otherwise he would, there would be no going to bed. Uh, and he is he's he's especially recently he's been very demanding about how he doesn't want seeds in anything. And he and I bring him the fruit, and he says, "Oh, uh, do these have seeds in it? I don't want the seeds." And I explain, if you 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 take the seeds out. You spit the seeds out. This is how fruit works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and you just have to, to roll spit with this. Spit them method. into the bath. Yeah. Well, not into the bath. <laughs> no, he asked the same thing. I can just spit them in the bath. No, you can't spit them in the bath. Just spit them back in. <laughs> this is why you have a bowl with fruit in it. But, but I wonder, like, to what extent this is a, you know, this is a natural instinct for, for young children especially to, to be appalled by the seed because in in fact, the seed uh, of some fruits could prove uh, dangerous to them. Yeah, you know, in the same way that I've I've heard some there are some theories about picky eating in children that basically amounts to the same thing that 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 picky eating in children is a natural inborn defense mechanism against uh, potentially dangerous foods that are going to be more dangerous for them given their uh, their small body size. That's funny because I I see the exact same evolutionary process working itself out in some babies and in my dog where it seems mm-hmm. like just anything that will fit in the mouth will go in there. <laughs> but then come back out, right? Sometimes with the dog? Oh yeah, sometimes. I mean, I don't know. My dog wants to eat things that I often think like that doesn't make biological sense <laughs> to have a drive to try to eat that rock. <laughs> well, am I correct in this that with dogs like that's part of their tasting process? Like mm. to 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 judge the food, it goes in the mouth first. Oh yeah, I guess that kind of makes sense. Yeah. I could be wrong on that. I'm not a dog expert. But uh yeah. but it, at any rate, uh that also but uh you know the 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 whole incident here with uh with seeds also comes up I understand with some pets. I I didn't really explore that thread, but I was seeing a number of different uh posts and articles out there about oh do I need to be concerned about my dog eating these pits. Well, there's certainly lots of foods that are probably not dangerous to you but might be dangerous to a pet for a couple of reasons mm-hmm. uh, for different body chemistry but also just because of different body size a serving that is contains nothing all that you know nothing in concentration dangerous to you mm-hmm. might be a big dose for a small animal right yeah especially a small dog small cat etc all right you know on on a final note here you know so many of the things we've been talking about we've been talking about like the dosage level the quantities uh Keep in mind the spice rack, okay? Uh, we actually have an older episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind uh, that is all about nutmeg. Nutmeg, and I encourage you to check that episode out because nutmeg is fascinating. It has this weird, wonderful history full of, like, Eastern medicine, um, European fashion, um, medieval medieval manipulation of the humors, uh, also, like, bloody colonial monopolies. It's I've definitely read about its use as a recreational drug. Yeah, there, uh, Malcolm X, uh, wrote about its, uh, its use in prisons. You would take a matchbox full of uh, nutmeg and you would have, uh, 
you know, an, an altered state. Huh. Uh, th- th- there are various other accounts from uh, from history. Samuel Samuel Pepys wrote about uh, an individual who who took nutmeg and ran naked through the streets of London. Samuel Pepys. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Uh, so, so there's a lot, there's a rich history with nutmeg. Uh, but yeah, nutmeg is an example of something where if you, you, uh, you use just a, a few sprinkles here and there on top of your eggnog or, or, or whatever, and it's, it's perfectly fine. I put a little on my smoothie every morning. Uh-huh. Um, but if you take larger quantities, there can be toxic effects. Spice and, trance. Yeah, spice trance, essentially. Uh, except a very unpleasant spice trance, uh, with lots of nausea and, and like a really horrible hangover. Now, I've read no accounts of recreational nutmeg use beyond sprinkles for flavoring that end well. It's all, grotesque and nobody tries it a second time uh for the most part unless they have no other option they're just extremely bored but but it serves as a a, i I think a a fine lesson because if you look at your spice rack in your house you are looking at a number of different substances that are in many cases toxins they are they 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 evolved in the original plants that they came from as a deterrent to keep people from eating them or to keep people from eating them beyond, uh, you know, certain portions. Yeah. In many cases, the pungency and flavor that we prize them for when applied a, a very small amount in our food is by itself disgusting. Yeah. This is it's by design disgusting. It's supposed to be that way as a defense mechanism. Yeah. Food technologies essentially are mastery of all of these elements. We figured out how to manipulate them, how to change them, often with fire and then uh, and then utilize uh, even these 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 potent uh, poisons in very small quantities that uh, changes the flavor. So. Yeah. Anything on your spice rack, if you took it in uh, sufficient quantities, you in many cases could have a, an altered experience, probably not a good altered experience, but an altered one and, and or experience the uh, toxic effects. So it's just, I, you know, worth keeping in mind. I think nutmeg is a great example of that. Uh, and I love nutmeg and, uh, uh, and, and yet I would, I would definitely not advise eating a matchbox full of it. Okay. So main takeaways from this episode, don't eat the green potatoes. Right. The dose makes the poison. Mm-hmm. Don't grind up uh, cherry wrapper cop pits and make a pesto out of them. <laughs> Don't freak out over the dead man's fingers, though. You know, take them out uh, for flavor purposes. Don't eat four cups of nutmeg. Yeah. I mean, basically, the, the take home is... <laughs> Don't take your food for granted. Uh, like, no, ha- have some basic idea of where food comes from, the processes that uh, that lead it to your plate, uh, the organisms from uh, that they stem from. Like, if you have the the more you know about about what your food actually is, the less shocking any of these dangers are, yeah. and also the better prepared you are for these uh, for for the uh, often you know small chances that you might encounter these problems. I think that's a really good point. Maybe that's the main takeaway from this episode. <laughs> When you think about your food, think about organisms. Don't think about it as a product that came from a factory, though in mm-hmm. many cases it probably was, pro- you know, if it's a packaged product, probably was processed in a factory somewhere. Right. But it is an organism or derived from an organism. Think about the organism it came from, the plant, the animal, whatever it is. Think about its place in nature, all the things that fed it and grew its bones as it in turn feeds you and grows your bones and hopefully doesn't poison you. And I think that's a perfect message for the holidays. So on that note, if you would like to certainly check out any of the links we mentioned here, that older episode on nutmeg, last year's episode on dangerous foods, etc., you can check all of that out at stufftoblowyourmind.com. You'll also find blog posts, you will find videos, you will find links out to various social media accounts as well. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, as always, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. I'm <laughs> sorry.